0: welcome to the impact learning visionaries podcast where we celebrate the unsung heroes of the learning and development industry as always we'll be bringing some laughter and a bit of fun along the way but more importantly you'll get some incredible insights key lessons and unique perspectives on everything related and possibly unrelated to training and development let's get this show on the road hello everybody and welcome to the impact learning visionaries podcast Today, our guest is Dr. Claire Welsh, who is the Director of Education for the Institute of Analytics and AI Society. The Institute of Analytics promotes data literacy, ethical data practice, and evidence-based decision-making. They're the leading global body for analytics and data science professionals, and they help their members to stay ahead of the curve of digital reform and thrive in the data age. Dr. Welsh is the driving force for all educational and training activities for their members and gets involved from the conception through to the development all the way to the implementation of their learning journeys. She's also written over twenty books which have been sold around the world, and like me, she is a bit of a serious data geek. Well, welcome to the show Claire Thank you great so so let's let's just jump right in because I think you have a very unique um, uh, place in the learning and development industry. So, so for for most of us, we are in companies, and and there is an element of we're paying you a salary, so you have to do what we say, um, and this is what you need to learn for your job. You you're part of an industry body where you know you have members joining, and I think there's a you know it, it's almost a different of way of in, encouraging people to upskill um, to to kind of learn best practices through you guys and It'll be interesting to understand just you know the way that you approach the learning journey with your members and and how you've had to adapt, knowing that your learning has to come more through influence, through kind of of members seeing real value in in your learning materials. Um, would love to learn about that that process and how you've positioned yourself so that you know, people are keen to learn from you guys.
1: So I think this year has been a landmark year and will continue to be a landmark year in the field of AI regulation in particular and data regulations. We've got a lot of new laws coming in. The obvious ones are things like the EU AI Act, but then we've got another huge one coming in in the autumn, which is the Digital Markets Act. Um, And there are many others going on in the background. Um, We teach best practice and best practice has not been invented this year. Um, we, you know, there have been a body of people who have been creating an understanding of what's going wrong with AI, where data practices are not working. We have been creating for years now solutions such as better documentation, transparency, training. And so a lot of companies this year have been a little panicked because suddenly we've got these new laws and we've got different laws around the world. and if you work in my field, you have to work internationally. So you have to respect all the laws, not just your local law. Um, But the reality is, if you're trained in best practice, you're safe, um, because the best practice cuts through most of the legislation. I haven't seen anything yet, aside from some limitations on what governments can do, and what the police body and those kinds of organizations can do. But everything else, if you're Practicing best practice, you're fine with the change in the law, and so I think that's the motivation for people to uh, get on board. If if not, you know, because it promotes respect for the company, reputation, trust. Because staff will enjoy working there far more if they know that they're working ethically. You know, there are many, many reasons to be doing it.
0: So it's it's I mean it's it's fascinating that you you kind of took the legislative, almost like the governance approach of of Driving behavior and adoption um, I guess the the other side of this is is you know, there is a shift to understanding how how data really actually defines decision making and how historically many companies are probably at fault for not leveraging the data in their organization um, sufficiently well and Part of the challenge, I guess, that most of your chief data officers or the people in these organizations face is convincing people to leverage more of the data. And I guess one of the biggest challenges of that historically is that, um, and I know this is changing, but the the larger the organization, the slower it takes for data to turn into insights. And just curious as to whether you've kind of observed that, and 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 how you help, you know, your your members, or how you help educate them to be able to navigate that in some, that that conversation inside the organisations.
1: I think a lot of the conversation about data is not completely new, and that's part of the challenge. And anybody my age, you know, any um, and below um, has a lot of experience using data historically to look at past sales figures, past performance. Excel's been around since, you know, the early 1990s, late 1980s. So we're not new, (laughs) completely new to this field. And I think that's where the problem comes from. We're not trying to introduce a new habit, we're trying to change an old habit. And that's always unlearning Um, is always going to be harder than than learning for the first time. Um, I think that a lot of companies have, and a lot of CEOs in particular, have been extremely successful On the basis of intuition hunches maybe they've got lucky um, in the past and there's a lot of data to suggest that you know we can we can assume it was you know a series of sensible decisions that were always leading down this one path in reality quite often it's just they got a bit lucky (laughs) and and, and in any year there's going to be a few people who are lucky and are doing incredibly well and we, we don't pay attention to the others. um so it's really trying to persuade these CEOs who have used a method extremely successfully in the past, intuition, gut feeling, to then try and transition over to a data-driven approach. So that's that's one of the challenges. I think when you mentioned about the large companies, the, the big companies that are slow to change, I think they're very often in um, highly regulated fields. And I think they have good reason to be proceeding cautiously because as soon as a lot of the new AI technologies left the research labs and were used in the real world um, with real data sets, with real consequences, with very specific success criteria, um, not just, you know, well, it worked. And I found a use in the lab and everybody's talking about it. But actually, I've got a real world problem to solve. Um, we realized there were a lot of challenges. So the machines were doing unpredictable things. They were Producing insights that could be useful, and they definitely are useful, and we should all be using machine insight going forward. But we also need to be trained to understand how the machines think differently um, and where they might go wrong.
0: Uh, yeah, so I think, um, you know, in, in that sense, I think, you know, we, we always see data as being quite definitive, right? It's, it's binary, it's black and white. The data doesn't lie um but the uh I, th- I guess the the implications um as you said that many organizations face is how that data goes from data to insight and um the interesting thing then i'm I'm curious to know you know how how you are helping your members like kind of navigate this is i think there's been a lot of of scenarios where data has um or insights. That have been produced by organisations are, you know, there's a there's an element of bias that comes in to the data, like how the data is sourced, where it's sourced from, how it's essentially presented, and that bias as well is is starting to, you know, it's it's obviously affecting and influencing AI because AI is not going to understand the concepts of bias. It's just going to pick up the data, take it at face value, and and present it to someone going, this is what I think is the right answer. Um, in, in terms of, of, that bias in data, how are you, you know, how are you seeing organizations dealing with that?
1: So this is one of the things we have to be well aware of. Any of these new machine learning algorithms um, are working with probability distributions, you know, like probably this is right. Probably that is right. And it combines probable insights and sometimes it can do an amazing job. Really amazing job. But it sees no, diff, no qualitative difference between these different probability distributions and, and how that actually ends up being experienced in the real world. It, it's a very different way of thinking to a human way of thinking. And how that ends up being experienced in the real world is, for example, Amazon tried training a machine to do the first sift through applications for, for, for jobs. And the machine very quickly realized that women weren't ever taken on or rarely taken on to technical roles and so it just said oh well that's a rule that's what the humans want they don't want a woman in a technical role and it just started rejecting every single female application which of course breaks equal opportunities laws <laughs> and it had to be scrapped they could never use it Um there are Uh, Our field is incredibly complex. There's no point trying to simplify it. We need to understand how these algorithms are working. We need the computational side to understand this business of probability distributions. We need some mathematics to understand how do we sample? How do we get a representative fair sample? Lots of um, face recognition algorithms, for example, in the early days would not work with ethnic minority females. Because it had never seen any, because it never occurred to the people training the machine, they were part of the population because when they looked around the lab, all they saw was a bunch of white males, and for them, that was the world represented perfectly and and uh, we had huge, huge problems with completely random results with um, facial recognition on ethnic minority women, but the police had been told that the machine had been you know ninety eight percent accurate which it is with white males, um, and they couldn't understand the idea that it wouldn't work for all populations equally. So that's the mathematics side of it. And then you've got this this other area, which is, you know, what does success look like in your particular domain? And for many companies, it's it's something completely different. Um, we had an algorithm that was trained to recognize skin cancers, for example. Using computer vision, it would use an image of, of a skin cancer and um, <laughs> For the engineers, it was fantastic. It was like 99% correct. Amazing. Um, but when the doctors looked at the sample um, the sample data sets, they realized that actually if it was cancerous, then the person taking the photograph of whatever it was, the mark on the skin, would put a ruler in the picture if they thought it was cancerous, um, and, you know, so that it could be of use. And so all this machine was doing was picking up the presence and absence of a ruler not judging whether it was cancerous or not so there's this so there's these three different fields we need to master and that's not easy Um, (laughs) these days but nonetheless we you know we've got to accept this is the world we're moving into if we get it right we can do amazing things Um, and we just have to be cautious the way we go forward.
0: So, so now that we've established that it's a, a very complex, technical, fast-moving world, basically reminiscent of the Wild Wild West, um, if we now start looking kind of of introspectively at people in similar positions to yourself in organizations who are now starting to have to adapt to this changing world, and we've heard of these concepts of the future of work and and how it's it's kind of of um, elevating these softer skills, you know, like looking for people who are more adaptive and agile and able to, as you mentioned earlier, unlearn as efficiently as they can learn. And within each of these learning and development areas in these organizations, the the kind of, of um, driving emphasis is becoming more and more data-driven. So to, to kind of You know, imagine the world of old, which is I'm a learning and development manager, and my key metric is course completion rates, um, and how many people of my organization are actually doing a course at any given time, and how I'm essentially kind of working against my, let's be honest, very limited budget. Um, Then you know that's that's no longer relevant. You know, we're, we're looking at a whole host of of different metrics and different data starting to insert themselves into into the kind of, of world of these learning and development people who've now got to try and and tackle and understand this kind of emerging world of increased complexity. Um, as, as someone who is in that position in the very organization who's trying to kind of wrap their head around all of these things, how do you deal with the internal data? I mean, how, how do you present Your how effective you are within your community to to kind of the people that you need to kind of share share that information with.
1: So very specifically, (laughs) advice to you in that learning field, um, I think that it's all about um, pathways. When we're thinking about learning, development, and careers, it's about finding the right pathway. And so, very specifically, I always think graph analytics are an incredibly good way of tracking, well, this person took this course and then they did that and then they did that and they got where we wanted them to get to. So if we can start following those individual pathways, we can start identifying the ones that are more successful Um, and we can start making recommendations as well. You know, we saw the people doing this path were successful and we think you might like to as well. Um, So I think very specifically, (laughs) I think that's a technology that's incredibly useful for you. In terms of the bigger challenge, I think we do need to start rethinking what we're doing um, significantly. Um, One of the tasks I was asked to do was was, um, when I was working for the UK government was to have a look at how universities are preparing data analysts. Um, Many people from the field of industry and business were complaining that they weren't prepared. (laughs) They were graduating from university and they were not ready for the job. Um, and I think that there, there's a complete misunderstanding about the roles of training and the roles of, of, of work. Um, within a university, they have to give them clean data sets because it would waste everybody's time. They have to give them a well-defined problem that definitely has a solution because they have to assess how those kids are doing. That's a major requirement of university. And none of that is is reminiscent of the world of work. <laughs> When they get into work, uh, it's going to be filthy, dirty data sets. Very badly defined problems. The problem will be, we would like to harness the power of data. Like, what does that mean? Um, And then there may never be a solution. We may try something in the analytics field and actually it might not work. Um, We don't know until we try it because a lot of this is new. Um, And these are complex skills that our education system does not thrive at (laughs) you know it's very good at um single um particularly in the field of assessment which used to be my field you know everything is simplified and reduced to something incredibly measurable that we can um guarantee we've assessed correctly and it just does not reflect the real world which is these complex procedural things um that um and, and like you said very complex skills that are not convenient to assess therefore education does not promote them unless there's an individual teacher very motivated to promote these skills and so I think if you're working in the learning and development space you've got to realise there's a mismatch in many ways between what kids are graduating with and what they're capable of and it really shows up in my field and particularly yeah. in data analytics was a huge mismatch and we've got to work out how to deal with that
0: and something else you said there which is also fascinating for me is you you kind of alluded to the fact that Mm -hmm. traditional assessment methods you know where you're giving someone multiple choice questions and then you're kind of assessing them based on a percentage are becoming a and less relevant because you're not really testing for real world scenarios so you know I I guess the, the, the first thing that popped into my mind is is, you know, how do you go from objective to what starts to sound like more subjective assessments and use data.
1: Yeah. So governments are understandably very, very reluctant to make that move. And, you know, we've got to bear in mind that really formal high-stakes testing is very litigious at the moment. You know, like if you get things wrong the kids parents will sue and they will track you down um to 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 claim against you so so i think people who des- and i used to design assessments people have to be cautious and we have a series of mathematical analysis that we carry out on the results we convert your kid's score into you know 1.69 logits um and then we convert it back to something more meaningful oh she got a b um um, you know, we do a lot of manipulation of those those t- that those ticks on the page to get at what, what we can justify and defend as a score. Um, now then none of that mathematics works with complex skills. It is entirely dependent on um dichotomous answers. Dichotomous means yes-no. Ideally a yes-no answer. It's right, it's wrong. Once we start moving into processes, systems, you know, these complex things that we have to manage, we don't have the mathematics to back us up and say, look, we're getting it right. We can defend this assessment process. Um, And it has to be very human heavy. There has to be a lot of human involvement. It has to be, as you said, subjective. So then we have to then introduce very complex, long processes to make sure that it's not too subjective. That your grade is dependent on your performance, not the person who is scoring you that day and their mood and whether they're happy and had their breakfast or, you know, all these other things that come into it. Um, you know, excitingly, if we managed it uh, before I moved into the field or while I was moving into the field of data analytics, we managed it in Wales. So in Wales, kids do have a compulsory assessment of complex skills, planning, um, or complex system management, um, communications, not GCSE, English, communication. Um, And it's compulsory. uh, It's a performance measure, meaning that the teachers have to get their kids' scores up because they get judged on it as well. It's for 14 to 18-year-olds in full-time education. It replaces two GCSEs, which is the UK exam, and it replaces one-third of the UK state school leaving exam um and it's wonderful and it's working kids are loving it and they're doing some amazing things um it's very human heavy meaning it's a lot of work but everyone and that's the prime yeah Yeah.
0: that is often the challenge with these things is they don't tend to scale very well exactly
1: exactly it just involves a lot of commitment a lot of work from everyone yeah
0: so if, if we take everything, because obviously a big focus of that was on the the kind of, of primary, secondary, and, and to probably uh, similarly to the tertiary kind of education, but then we get into the adult's corporate education, where maybe one would hope that you're not going to get the angry parents coming to see you if you don't do it the the right kind of governed way. You know You have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more freedom in terms of the way that you that you measure success and you measure impact um in in those kinds of environments with this you know future of work with these soft skills with this kind of 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 new way of assessing how are you seeing organizations starting to adapt the these kind of of more like i would say less objective less traditional school based assessment types into those kinds of things like how are you seeing? You know, short of the kind of matrix model, the grid model you talked about, which is if they've done course A and then they've done course B and then they've done course H, that generally that means that they're a better data analyst, um, to to kind of saying, well, the hard skills, in other words, are you a good data analyst, is only one part of the process. You know, there's so much more. Like, and And let's take data analysis as one example. So... A data analyst, um, or, or let's say a data scientist, is someone who obviously has to understand how you derive the data and, and how you essentially source the data, how you stage the data, how you kind of develop the insights. But then the soft skills need to come into place. You know, is how am I making this data interesting and understandable to people? You know, how am I telling a story about that data? How am I uh, essentially eliciting behavior change as a result of an insight that I've discovered around that data? How are, you, how are you kind of measuring success and impact around those skills?
1: So at the Institute of Analytics, we've had to do this. We've had to lead on this. And this is one of the things we do. We developed um, an analyst competency framework, which covers all of the things you've just mentioned. Um, I, obviously, the vast majority of it is the actual knowledge of how to run the analytics. We want robust processes. And ethical processes is technically robust and strong. And, and that's what sets us apart from everybody else in the company is that we're able to run the analytics. But then we do also need um, other fields of, of competency, um, governance and professionalism. So how do you actually you know, communicate? How do you judge the, the results that are coming out? How do you integrate those with the company's goals? Because it can't exist Data analytics cannot exist in isolation. Um, and I think early models of how companies were going to use data ana- analytics, they would almost lock the analyst in a cupboard. Not quite, but they would feel that nobody understood what they were saying. Um, nobody really wanted to talk to them. Or just ask them to, to, to perform their magic um, from the cupboard. Uh, and we've realized, well, that just does not work. They've, you know, they've got to be integrated, um, you know, and it can be done. Accountants work with data and they're amazingly good at understanding how a business works and what the business goals are. Um, we need um, communication because not just, you know, how do you communicate, but how do you communicate incredibly complex insights? How do you communicate technical risk to people with no training? Um, those kinds of things. How do, you ex- how do you explain when things have all gone wrong, <laughs> which they will in our field? Um, and then also, of course, leadership, because people are having to take more responsibility for projects and project planning. And we hope our, um, our, our junior analysts will one day become chief data officers. And so we have a framework. We have descriptors for each level. I think one of the biggest risks in the field of data analytics is that people do a job. They're not data analysts. They do a job. And what we find is that when the training is entirely left in the hands of the company, the learning and development is entirely in the hands of the company, perhaps the human resources department don't have the knowledge to understand what's required, what training they need. Um, They have no idea. Um, And so you end up with an analyst doing a job and it's very narrow. They go very deep into one tiny field of analytics. And so one of the big things we do is to encourage them to go a little bit broader and look at all the possibilities out there. Um, because if you've got your analyst just doing a job, you're not going to move forwards. We want them to look at the possibilities and hopefully start recommending things that we could be doing that we're not already doing. And that's, I think, a mark of success. So we have a large framework. <laughs> it goes all the way from complete beginner to chief you know to to a very experienced analyst and we've got descriptors at every stage of every criteria and it's complex it's not an easy job but
0: it's, i'm I'm assuming it's, like, like tracking progress and measuring success and impact along the way is is still probably a very difficult thing to do i mean short of seeing how the person essentially how affected they are in in their real day to day job it's it's quite difficult to before they go and do that job to say, well, you know, you've done very well at communication. You can now go out there with confidence and actually you've got that nailed. There's still probably a lot of uncertainty and doubt about how they're going to translate the skills that they've learned and apply them in a real world scenario. Or have you kind of sorted that out?
1: I wouldn't say we've sorted it out. We have an approach um, where, you know, it's about documenting what they have done getting endorsements from senior managers. Um, We also have an interview process where we will question them and challenge them. So we can see, you know, if they say you've done this, well, you should, if you have done this, you should be able to answer these questions. Um, And so that's how we do it. So again, it doesn't have that comfortable rigor of a multiple choice task, Um, but it's we we need a way of evaluating how people are performing in this field, and we need to be able to feedback to these human resource managers who might not know how to assess their data analysts um, whether things are going well or not. You know how how things are progressing.
0: So I also couldn't help but notice that you drew out a certain shape when you were explaining the data. You said that they like most of them are like this, but you are training them like this. And that that shape represents a T, um, and there's been a lot of of um, you know a kind of, of work done on the difference between i-shaped individuals and T-shaped individuals, especially as it relates to creativity, innovation, which are obviously both soft skills. but it's it's interestingly, are you specifically kind of seeing that model play out in other areas of soft skills and and effectiveness in organizations? Is this kind of depth of skill with breadth of knowledge?
1: Um, we definitely see it in the actual analytics process that we, you know, we have to encourage people to try and broaden their scope. Um, I think we see, I, I think we do see it as well, particularly in communication, um, where if you are trained in data analytics, you probably haven't received rigorous or supportive training in how to express your ideas effectively um, with others. I think other areas, it often depends on the individual. So we do encourage, for example, leadership to follow that shape. Um, I think a lot of it comes from the internal motivations of the individual. You know, how do you build a leader? You try. Um, (laughs) But at some point, that's more of a, there's got to be a motivational aspect to that. But yeah, I think definitely um, it's about moving people away from seeing themselves as I, you know, I do my job day in, day out. What could you be? Where could you be? Um, is is kind of the, but what we would like people to reflect on a little more.
0: So, so short of of putting yourself out of a job, which I I don't think you're at risk of. Um, but you know, kind of looking at other learning and development managers sitting sitting in organisations, having to kind of you know solve like help help with the people side of the business. It's essentially, I mean, their, their job is now getting to the point where it's it's no longer just taking their lead from line managers who are saying, I've just had a performance review with this person They need to do that type of training, please sort it out, to kind of being more strategic in the organization and understanding where the organization is going towards and how they need to enable the people to be able to reach that goal. So in many ways, probably the first mate of of kind of a, a ship where you know the, the captain just worries about the direction and not sailing off the end of the world or getting eaten by a sea sea monster and and leaves the first mate to make sure that there's no mutiny aboard um and and the, the question is you know, from from putting yourself in the shoes of those those individuals you know kind of having to navigate all of this complexity around data and understanding that learning and development like every other kind of component of organization needs to function off the data that is being created in the organization what what advice would you give to to kind of learning and development managers or people driving learning in the organization to help navigate some of this complexity around data and analytics especially if they don't have a very mature data and analytics capability in their organization
1: yeah so I, so my message to you, if you work in learning and developing, firstly, is to understand the scale of the challenge ahead of you right now. Um, be, you remember, some of you will be old enough like me <laughs> to remember, back in the 1990s, where we had to upskill to communication technologies, because technology in the field of communication went digital, from analog, and communication is so fundamental to how we work of course it was never optional we would have to learn to work with emails um have zoom calls those kinds of things it it, it's kind of obvious in hindsight it was never optional um understand right now decision making is going digital um, and decision making is just as fundamental so just as we had to train people to be digitally literate We've got the same challenge ahead of us right now to become data literate, um, and it's the same scale of challenge. You can't opt out of it. <laughs> so if you are in learning and development, you should be leading the way. <laughs> um, we have training for you. If you're, if you know, if you, you hate the thought of doing any analytics, you can still engage in how we make decisions in human machine teamings. We have a lovely course. For people who want to go nowhere near a spreadsheet, (laughs) but nonetheless would love to understand what we what we're up to, what we are getting up to, Um, and and there are things you know, what questions they should be asking, what challenges they should be making to us, or what, what they should be asking us to do for them, because there are some amazing things we can do. I think my my number one advice is just understand the scale of change that is coming. If you have data and you are lucky enough to have access to a data analyst, go and speak to them. Share your data set. Sit down for a cup of coffee. Chat with them about what you could be doing with it, what the limitations are, what the affordances are. I don't know what your data set looks like, but if you showed it to me, I'd have a million ideas for things we could do. Um, And hopefully you have a data analyst in your team. If you are in the unfortunate position of working for a company that still does not have a data analyst, then I think you yourself are going to have to get yourself trained up somehow. Um, and I would start with one of these training courses for um what we, we often call non-technical training courses, where you're just learning with pos- the possibilities, the potential. What has changed? How are we making decisions in this new world? Um, and then you know, there are ways of getting started with spreadsheets you're probably comfortable with, software, point-and-click software you probably love, and I might be able to persuade you to try a little bit of coding, just a little bit, <laughs> um, which will get you all sorts of amazing analytics processes with your data. Really amazing. But you're going to have to make that first step.
0: Yes, and, and I guess therein lies a bit of the growth mindsets is being willing to kind of of learn new things that make you very uncomfortable.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, Right. Closing question before we we sign off um, is we always ask our guests on the show if uh, to share with us a recent podcast, book, something that they've come across that has made a a real kind of of impact or delivered some kind of aha moment Um, to share it with the the audience.
1: So I am loving a book by David Birch. It's called um, Before Babylon, Beyond Bitcoin. You might think you have no interest whatsoever in Bitcoin, but it's just incredibly well written. And it's about money. It's about how we record money, how our attitudes to money change. And I think it's very much what you've just mentioned about the growth mindset. It's understanding that every now and then we have to have a reset (laughs) in our way of thinking. We've done it with money from, you know, tally sticks with little notches on them to coins, to notes, to electronic money. And now, of course, we're facing Bitcoin money and all these other currencies. Um, And even if, you know, I'm not particularly interested in banking, but it's just an amazing story of changing attitudes to money. And particularly, you know, if you work in business and industry, where are we, where is money going in the future? Money is common to all of us. Where is it likely to be heading? And some of the new qualities of, of the new digital monies, money with history. Imagine if you knew where the coin in your in your wallet, who had had that before you, and what they had spent it on. That's the kind of potential we've got coming. Um, and I just think it's an amazing book, really transformative.
0: Uh, I think that's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, the, you just reminded me of uh, an old movie, Serendipity, where uh, with John Cusack and I can't remember who the other actress was, uh, Kate Beckinsale. Like, yeah, have this romantic involvement, and she leaves a message on a on a on a kind of a, a banknote or a book or something, and and how it just basically inspires this whole thing where he's like wandering around trying to find and and I, like the the kind of odd note. And and how you've just said, like you know, it's something I never even thought about. Is is, you know, if I'm giving someone some currency, like you know, understanding that everything has a history, you know, and 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 also the corollary to that is that now that we know what that history is, what do we do with all this information? Because it's quite overwhelming. So very very, it's absolutely fascinating. I Love that. Thank you for sharing that. And more importantly. Thank you so much for being on the show, Claire. It's been absolutely um, wonderful and insightful um, chatting to you, not only because I spent many years in data and absolutely love data, data, everything about data, but also because of your your very unique insights, being part of an industry body and looking at learning and development from that space.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hey, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Impact Learning Visionaries. If you found it interesting or helpful, please subscribe by clicking the button down below so you don't miss our next one. Also, be sure to check out our Reality Bytes blog for more information on how technology is aiding in learning development. Links are all in the description below. Go check it out. Thanks a lot. Bye.